Well, please turn your Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter 1. We'll be considering verses 12 through the first half of verse 18. So chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 18. So far, Paul has just got done finishing his introductions to this letter. He, uh, we read about his, his greeting, his thanksgiving, his prayer for the Philippians, and now he's moving into the body of his letter. One thing that you'll notice in the rest of chapter 1 here is all of these personal notes about Paul's current circumstances as he's currently imprisoned in Rome. And we read about his mindset. How is he viewing these, these great sufferings and tribulations? Indeed, as he's even viewing the possibility of death. What's his mindset in all of this? So again, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 uh, through the first half of verse 18. Let us now turn our attention to the hearing and reading of God's holy word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and profitable word. Uh, may the Lord write his, his word upon our hearts this evening. I'm sure we're all familiar with Benjamin Franklin's oft-quoted statement that the only sure things in life are death and taxes. As Christians, I think we could probably add a third item to that list. Suffering. The Bible tells us repeatedly that suffering is not a matter of if, but rather a matter of when. In fact, Jesus tells us that a disciple is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, how much more will they persecute you who are my disciples? We all have experienced suffering in this life. Some of us may have even experienced suffering because we are Christians or have pledged our allegiance uh, to Christ. But most of us, our suffering is because we live in a fallen world and fallen bodies amongst other fallen sinners. In fact, Paul will go on to tell us in chapter 3 that because we are in Christ, and everything we do in this life is done as those who are in Christ. Even the sufferings that are, not, that are not explicitly linked to us being Christians, but rather just 
because we live in a fallen world, even those sufferings are sufferings that are done in and for Christ. The question is, though, how do we view suffering when it comes into our life? Because it indeed will come. So what should our mindset be towards the afflictions and hardships uh, that life brings our way? There are many ways one could react. There are many ways in which we probably have reacted in the past. Sometimes we rightly lament and acknowledge the absurdity and horribleness of the things that come into our life. But sometimes in that lament, we become disillusioned. Other times, we fail to properly lament the suffering in our life, and we feel like we just need to move on, exercise more faith, and get over it. Well, in this passage, I want us to observe how Paul is viewing his own suffering so that we can learn from his example. So I want us to observe how Paul is viewing his own suffering and hardships so that we can learn from his example. Now, I believe that Paul is wanting us to imitate his example here. We always have to be careful when we read the Bible. Not every example of a character is given uh, to us to imitate But I think Paul is wanting us to imitate his mindset here for a couple of reasons. First, Paul repeatedly tells us throughout the New Testament, and in fact, even in this very book, in chapter 3, that we are called to imitate him insofar as he imitates Christ. As we read this passage, I think his example is a positive example, a way in which he is imitating Christ and thus given to us uh, to emulate. And second you'll notice that Paul gets very specific about what's going on in his life, here in this passage, and even next week, as he continues this line of thought. You're kind of left wondering, well, why is Paul doing this? And at the end of chapter 1, Paul will go on to exhort all Christians to suffer. Everyone who is a Christian has been, been granted two things, faith and the call to suffer. But I think one of the reasons why Paul is giving us so many personal details about his mindset as current circumstances is so that we would have an example to imitate, as we then are all called to suffer. So this evening, I want us to consider three things about Paul's view on suffering. First, we'll notice that Paul acknowledges his suffering. Second, we see that Paul explains his suffering. Lastly, we see that Paul points us to our suffering Savior. So Paul acknowledges his suffering, Paul explains his suffering, and Paul points us to our suffering Savior. First, let's consider how Paul acknowledges his suffering to this Philippian church. As I've mentioned many times already, Paul is writing this letter from prison, a prison in Rome. In fact, Paul in this passage explicitly mentions this. He refers to his chains, to his imprisonment, many times. Of course, this is a real trial and suffering for uh, the Apostle Paul. I don't really need to defend that idea. None of us, I would imagine, aspire uh, to the destination of prison. And Roman prisons were usually not a long-term destination. Usually people went to Roman prisons as they were awaiting their trial of either execution, release, or transfer. And next week, we'll see how Paul really is anticipating death. This is a real possibility for the Apostle Paul as he is awaiting 
his trial. But prison was not the only suffering and hardship that Paul was enduring at this time. We read that some Christians in Rome were viewing Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to afflict and discourage Paul in order to promote themselves. If you look with me in your Bibles at verse 17, Paul says this referring to a section or a group of of believers in Rome. He says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, these Christians weren't trying to do physical harm to the Apostle Paul. They were trying to do emotional, psychological harm. They were trying to discourage Paul. They were using Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to step on him in order to promote themselves and further their own name. Of course, we have no way of knowing, but this latter suffering may have been even harder for Paul to deal with than the fact that he was in prison. I mean, Christians, fellow Christians, were supposed to be on his same team. But it was these fellow Christians who were closest to him in proximity, in Rome, where he was in prison. And they were the ones who were betraying him, betraying him at his lowest point. So we see here Paul acknowledging to the Philippians and to us his sufferings, his hardships. It's important to know that Paul's main point in this passage is not to lament what he's going through, his sufferings of being in prison, of having fellow Christians betray him. Uh, we, we, in a short while, we'll see what his main point is. But I think it is important for us to observe the fact that Paul is still acknowledging what he's going through. It's very rare for Paul to give this much uh, personal details of all his current circumstances. You don't see that in every or most of, of Paul's letters. But he does so in this letter. He's intentionally acknowledging the hardships that he's going through. So I'd like to dwell a few moments on the importance of, of acknowledging, lamenting our own hardships and sufferings. You know, I think sometimes we too quickly run to Romans 8.28. You know, I think we all know what maybe our mindset should be, and so we too quickly run, you know, God works all things for good. And we need to get there, and we will get there. I think it's important for us to first just begin by acknowledging the hardship and the sufferings that this life brings our way. And lament those sufferings before God and before others. You know, one lesson I learned very on in marriage, which I'm sure most of you who are married, all of you who are married have, have learned as well, especially men. When your wives come to you with a problem, a hardship, uh, not wanting to fix it right away, Um, I know that's my first impulse, but they're just wanting you to hear them, to lament, to acknowledge how hard, whatever they're going through, um, how hard it actually is. I think there's some truth to that, even with our relationship to God. The first kind of step in in our suffering is lamenting it. And this is where the Psalms are so helpful for us. The Psalms uh, are so raw and unfiltered in many ways. They express every, every human emotion you can really think of. And that's why they're so helpful for us in our own prayer life, because they give us words to express what we're feeling, no matter what emotion is on our heart. 
This is also part of the reason why we're so committed as a church to psalm singing. It does the very same thing for us in corporate worship. So it's interesting how when you, you look at many of the modern uh, worship songs that come out, many of them are, are just upbeat and happy. And yes, that's one emotion of the Christian life, but there are still many, many other emotions of the Christian life. So what do we sing when we feel as if we're in the pit of despair? And that emotion does come along in the Christian life. Well, the Psalms give us things to sing when we are feeling that way. In fact, John Calvin in his in introduction to his commentary on the book of Psalms, he says that the Psalms are anatomy of every part of the soul. So we don't just sing Psalms because it's tradition. We sing songs because this is the divine songbook that's been given to us and does such a great job expressing every human emotion. We should all also acknowledge our sufferings to one another. So not only to God, but also to one another. This is one of the blessings of belonging to a local church. You have other fellow brothers and sisters who are in uh, this pilgrimage of the Christian life with us together, who can empathize with us, who can share our burdens with you. It's really interesting that Paul is writing this to the Philippian church. Again, this isn't his personal diary. He's writing this as a letter to a church. Why? Because he knows the Philippians are there for him in prayer and concern and support. You know, Paul analogizes the, 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 the church um, to that of a body, a human body. And he says that uh, when one member suffers, we all suffer. Imagine if, you're, if your pinky toe is in dire pain. It's going to be very hard for the rest of your body to be comfortable and relaxed. Well, so too with the church. Paul says this is how a healthy church is meant, uh, meant to run. That if even the weakest, the smallest member is suffering, we all are meant to suffer. We share each other's burdens. In fact, Paul will even say that the weakest member is indispensable to the body of Christ. So Paul is warning us to continue. Continue to be a church that is willing and eager to acknowledge and to bear each other's burdens. So lament, acknowledgement, these are good, and we should, we should do these things. But we can't stop here. Paul now goes on to explain his suffering. So Paul explains his suffering. You know, Paul's main point in verses 12 through 18 here is to encourage the Philippians by what God is doing through his imprisonment. The fact that God is indeed working these um, bad circumstances for good. Well, how? How is God at work? How is God working these circumstances uh, for good? I want us to focus on, on two main purposes that God has for Paul's suffering. Uh, first, we see that Paul uh, says that the gospel is advancing because of his imprisonment. No, it's because of his imprisonment, not in spite of his imprisonment. God is working precisely through these bad, unfortunate circumstances to further the gospel. And we see that, that Paul's imprisonment served to advance the gospel outside the Christian community. If you look with me in your Bibles at verse 13, 
Paul says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now the imperial guard were Roman soldiers who had a higher status, higher pay than their normal, ordinary Roman soldier. Paul's point is that message of who he is and why he's in prison, namely that he's in prison for Christ, it's spreading throughout the whole Roman guard. Or imagine some of these guards who are dealing with Paul hardly being able to get through a day without uh, them being told about Christ from the Apostle Paul. In fact, at the end of Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul will send greetings to the Philippians from saints in Caesar's household. You may wonder, well, how are there saints in Caesar, Caesar's household? Well, probably through the Apostle Paul and how God worked his imprisonment to advance the gospel through the Roman guard. And Paul also says to all the rest, as likely he's referring to unbelievers just in the city at large, news of his imprisonment spread. And it also spread the name of Christ. We also see that Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel within the Christian community. If you look with me again at verse 14, Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, being a believer in Rome would not have been a comfortable or safe thing. They would have faced much danger. Ancient Rome wanted to be a society that conformed. They didn't want any outliers, especially when it comes to religious convictions and beliefs. So it would have been very dangerous for them to go and preach and share the gospel. But Paul's imprisonment lit a fire under them. They were now emboldened to go share Christ to those around them. In verses 15 through 18, we read that Paul's imprisonment has indeed emboldened Christians. But there's uh, Christians sharing Christ with two sets of motives. So on one hand, some of these emboldened Christians were preaching out of good motives, out of love for Christ, for Paul, for the gospel. But there were also those who were preaching Christ out of false motives, envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. They saw themselves as in competition with the Apostle Paul, and this was their opportunity to get ahead. If you look with me at verse 18, Paul says, as he's responding to this fact that there are Believers who are seeking to use the gospel as a vehicle to discourage him. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether with false motives, pretense, or in truth, or good motives, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's focus is not on himself or his ego. His focus is in how God is using his trial to advance the gospel. As long as this is happening, he can rejoice. As a brief side note, I think it's important to note that uh, this is kind of an interesting response. We probably wouldn't, for many reasons, respond this way. But Paul is viewing the gospel as an objective message. The message of the gospel doesn't lose its power just because there are false motives uh, by the one who's preaching it. The gospel is objective. It's a message. And if that message is correct, it will have power. 
But if you start tweaking with the message of the gospel, that's when Paul has no time for you. And you just read the book of Galatians. Paul's very harsh for those who, who um, tweak the message of the gospel. So again, we see here that Paul's imprisonment has served to advance the gospel, even though there were those preaching with false motives. We may be thinking, well, it sure would be nice to, to know the purposes behind my suffering, as Paul did about his. But the vast majority of the times, we don't. We don't know why we suffer the way we do. The way we, do. we don't know why God sends the things into our life that he does. Our sufferings, to use some Old Testament examples, are, are oftentimes more like Joseph's than Job. Remember Joseph, uh, boys and girls, uh, the story of, of, of this biblical character who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he was falsely accused, sent to prison. So he went to the lowest of lows, and then he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and he rises up the ranks of, in Egypt, and there's a great famine in the land. Years later, great famine in the land, his brothers come to him unknowingly, and he's able to bless his brothers and bless many in the land because of these past evils. And he says in chapter 50 of, of Genesis, what, God, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good, that many would be blessed. But Job, on the other hand, Job suffers, but he's never told why. All he's told is that God is in control and that he belongs to God. And that's oftentimes what we're told. We just have the scriptures and we know that God works all things for good. We know that everything is under his sovereign control, but we don't know the distinct purposes behind what happens in our life. You know, boys and girls, Heidelberg Catechism um, 27, which we, will, uh, we are coming up to shortly, says that nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by chance. Everything is under God's sever sovereign control. Is one of my... Uh, professors once said that God, you know, God does not permit any evil without already determining how he's going to work it for good. We don't know why he permits evil. We know he's not the author of evil, but we do know that he has already determined how he will work it for good. You know, like a long, young child who, who doesn't know why he or she can't just eat candy all day, and why he or she has to take naps, doesn't understand the logic behind those things. They just have to trust the word of their father. So, too, we have to trust the word of our Heavenly Father, even though we don't know the distinct purposes behind what goes on in our life. Corey Tenboom, whom you, you all probably heard of before, uh, she hid Jews during the Holocaust in Holland, and she also uh, went to a concentration camp at one point, suffered many, many great evils and, and sufferings. She was compared, you know, God's providence and this issue of suffering in the Christian life to that of a tapestry. When you look at the backside of a tapestry, it looks like it looks chaotic and messy. No unity, no real distinct pattern or picture. But when you flip it over, you see, you see a beautiful picture. You see what the artist intended. Oftentimes, God's providence in this life looks like the backside of a tapestry. It will remain that way for most of us. But in glory, we know that we will see the other side. We will see how God worked all things for our good. And that's what we have to rest in, that we are under the loving care of our Heavenly Father. Well, briefly, we see a, a second way that God is at work in Paul's sufferings. We see that 
God is using Paul's sufferings to humble him. Now consider for a moment the humility it would take to be imprisoned and to have fellow Christians intentionally using the gospel as a vehicle to discourage you and then rejoice on the other side of that. I would imagine that wouldn't have been Paul's first instinct. <laughs> I think the flesh would tell us to stand up for yourselves, defend your ego. But Paul recognizes that his identity is not found in his accomplishments, in his pre- preaching, his talents, the number of converts he's gained, the number of churches he's planted. His identity is found in Christ, and therefore his joy is attached to that identity. Peter says that tr- our trials in this life are meant to refine our faith. And one way I think our trials refine our faith is by growing us in humility and dependence upon God. John Calvin uh, makes the, the point as he speaks about the Christian life. He says, we might be harassed or despised, but thereby we drive deeper roots into Christ. In a lot of ways, I think that's the purpose of all our trials and afflictions. God uses them to cause us to grow deeper roots into Christ. Viewing trials in that lens, I think we can even be grateful for them. So they cause us to not stand upon our own life and works or righteousness, but cause us, humble us, and drive us to Christ himself. Well, Paul acknowledges his suffering. He explains his suffering. And lastly, and most importantly, Paul points us to our suffering Savior. Paul wants his suffering to be a lens through which we view our Savior. This is where our ultimate hope and comfort in times of suffering uh, should come from. One of the themes of Philippians 1 and 2 is emulating examples. Paul is given to us here in chapter 1 as as an example. In chapter 2, Timothy and Epaphroditus are given to us as examples to emulate. And the greatest example of all is given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's great Christological hymn in chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, how Christ came to this earth, he took on human flesh, took the form of a servant, and died the most lowly death one could die as he went to the cross. All these secondary examples of Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus are meant to point us ultimately to Christ. So consider for a brief moment the similarity between Paul's suffering and Jesus' suffering. Paul was imprisoned for a message, for proclaiming the gospel message. And in that lowest point, as he's in prison, awaiting potential death, those closest to him turn their back on him, betray him. Fellow Christians. Jesus was also arrested and executed for a message, proclaiming that he is equal with God. And we see that it was those closest to him also who betrayed him at his lowest point. First, we see that Jesus came to his own, meaning the Jews. It was the Jews who ultimately had him crucified. We see that it was his disciples who betrayed him. Judas uh, explicitly betrayed him. And Peter renounces him three times at the time when he needed his support the most. And greatest of all, on the cross, Jesus has his own father turn his back upon him as the Father pours his wrath upon Christ because of us. 
Thus, as we read and think about Paul's sufferings, it should point us to Christ, our Savior, the one who suffered the most of all, uh, suffered the most, uh, not only because of a message, but also uh, from those who were closest to him. Well, how does the fact that Christ suffered, why is that comfort to us in our own afflictions and suffering? Well, Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to this earth. He became like us in every way except for sin so that he can sympathize with us. For 33 years, Jesus came to this earth to learn the nature of our experience, what life in a fallen world is like, so that he can now live as your merciful and faithful and sympathetic high priest. If you're going through something and you feel like no one else on this earth could identify or empathize with me in what I'm going through, we can rest in the fact that there's one person who can and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. As he is there for us as our merciful high priest. Furthermore, because Jesus suffered, we can have confidence and assurance that we will one day be delivered from this present evil age, this age of suffering. We have the hope of a, of a new creation in which all evil and suffering and hardships will vanish. And in light of that hope, in light of eternity, Paul can say that this life is a light and momentary affliction. Greatest of all, because Jesus suffered, in particular the greatest suffering of all, experiencing the Father's wrath, we then have been delivered from that greatest suffering of all. In Christ we have passed through judgment. And, and we know that that judgment will never touch us. So, brothers and sisters, let us never forget that we do have a suffering Savior. Well, Church of Christ, as we continue this pilgrimage to this heavenly uh, Jerusalem that's ahead of us, let us not be ashamed of acknowledging the trials and tribulations of a pilgrim life. It's hard. But let us also be sure to lift our eyes to that horizon where we see the faint outline of the celestial city and realize the king of that city is sovereign over this land and has prepared a place for us by the death of his own son. Let us pray. O Lord, we ask that you would continue to sustain our faith as we endure the hardships of life as a Christian in a fallen world. Grant us the mindset of Paul, we ask, that we would acknowledge our suffering and sympathize with those around us. Most of all, Lord, we thank you that through Christ we have been delivered from the greatest suffering of all, which is your judgment. And of all God's people say, Amen.